Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM and the AM. It's good to be with you always. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm getting, I mean, I'm sure you, this will, you will not find surprising. After all, you know me pretty well for the last three decades. I'm getting a little bit uh, tired of this pre-election process. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm actually happy that it's 11 days away and not 11 months away. The fatigue has officially set in in the Siegel home. Let's put it that way. Uh, and, and frankly, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one, but I, I, watched the de- I watched the debate. I feel like I have to. And and skipping the, the whole discussion about the tone of the debate, it never seems to me they're getting to substantive issues and that they're responding, which is the fault of the moderator, and that they're responding in substantive ways, which is the fault of the candidates. Uh, you and I discussed last week the whole foreign policy discussion, how it's not a discussion right now. Last night was supposed to be more of that. Don't you feel that they, they, ba- they barely hit the tip of the iceberg? I don't really feel it. I think it was quite obvious, and uh, there may be reasons. I, I doubt that it is because people have no interest in it. I mean, how many times can they hear the same thing about sitting around the kitchen table and worrying, or, or and worrying about whether there is, there isn't a a, a vaccine right, coming? Right. And um, you know, hearing the, even though it was a much more moderated tone, and uh, I think more informative than the, the last one. Uh, still, I don't think it, it makes a substantive difference. The moderator tried. I think she did a relatively good job, and I think the candidates um, at times, you know, acquitted themselves with it. But by and large, it 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 isn't providing the information about what are the challenges that we face domestically and internationally, because everything ends up being uh, accusatory. Yeah, and and you don't know who to believe, and I guess that's the case in every election. I get that. But, you know, you don't know which candidate really has the right perspective on North Korea. I noticed in the news that there's now a new deal between North Korea and Iran, correct? There are new deals in North Korea and Iran. Well, we don't know if it's a new deal or it's an extension of an old deal. But the North Koreans have remained active with the Russians and with the Iranians. And remember, we always talked about, and I reported on the fact that Iranians were present when the North Koreans did tests of their, uh, both their missiles and the nuclear program. And the uh, North Koreans were in Iran. Uh, they they clearly have a synergistic relationship, and the missiles that Iran is developing was based on the Nodong uh, missile, and they just. Um, uh, launched again uh, a long-range um, um, uh, missile that they tested. So you have uh, the embargo now being lifted on Iran, so we will see much more right. about what goes on. You know, there was a 25-year deal between China and Iran, and they're selling the, them stuff. But the uh, but the North Koreans are part in terms of providing weaponry and technology, which they get in exchange for oil. Uh, and that included the Hwasong, uh, which is a mobile ballistic missile and has a 4,500-kilometer range. So just look at a map, and people will understand why that's 
yeah. particularly significant. My, and again, and you're, you don't, you're not required to be my sounding board for my frustration with the debates and this whole process, but wouldn't that have been a really good question as opposed to is the head of North Korea crazy or not a nice guy? Wouldn't it have been a better idea to pose a question like there is now a deal and a relationship that's really serious between Iran and North Korea? How's the U.S. going to react you know, to, to the way they do business together? That just would have been a lot more substantive, frankly. I I got to be a moderator. They got to hire me to be the moderator. That that's the answer. And they did not talk even about the strengths. You know, the creation of Snoop, the Quad, in uh, to, to confront China. The fact that we have right. India, uh, Australia, Japan, the United States working together. You know, there's going to be this exercise called Malabar that they do. It's a huge naval exercise in India. Now, Australia just uh, was announced this week that they were invited back after a decade more that they weren't there. And that it's uh, clearly a message to China, which is in a confrontation with India and the Himalayas, and both are accusing each other of violations. But it looks like the, the Chinese may have uh, had an incursion into India. But it's an accomplishment. It's getting these four uh, Pacific uh, democracies to work together creates a, a front. And so even the positive achievements didn't get the attention which would have helped highlight some of the serious issues. And anybody listening for the last five minutes just learned a lot more about U.S. foreign policy than anybody who tuned in last night to the debate, frankly. Uh, you know more than most about how Russia operates and Iran operates. I mean, now U.S. intelligence is talking about them inter- both interfering in the current election. Number one, does it matter? And number two, is, is it believable? Is it possible that they, from from that distance, and likely with with a lot of disinterest, I would think, in terms of who the next president is, is it really possible that these are credible uh, reports about the two countries interfering in our election? Yeah, it's, of course, credible. They're interfering all the time. They're interfering in businesses. They they can hijack uh, bitcoins. They can, um, um, you know, spread rumors. And, and having seen some of the dark web, and it's the most frightening thing possible, but when you see how much Iran is doing, for instance, on anti-Semitism, they got out of the political realm because everybody accuses everybody else and saying this is not true, this is not true. I saw it myself. They produce thousands of websites spreading anti-Semitic messages. They can they can infiltrate what a, what a particular institution, a message that goes out, or put it under somebody else's name and send it out. There's so much manipulation in in terms of the internet of how it can be used. It can be used by criminals. Uh, you're not surprised when they um, somehow rob a bank account, right, by over the internet or right. something, or disrupt the company. So why shouldn't it apply in the political realm? Are there interferers who are pro Biden and other interferers who are pro Trump? Like, is there a, a battle of the interferences going on behind the scenes? I think both are anti-American. Uh, whoever is involved in, in undermining American democracy, and what, I don't think they're pro anything except uh, what what they feel serves their purposes, or to disrupt the, the, the political process to undermine American democracy. That's what their goal is. Um, going to Israel for a second with the uh, current situation with the coronavirus. So it was uh, seventy-two thousand positive cases back on October second per day, and now they're talking about under. 20,000. Obviously, things are calming down a bit. Nobody knows what to anticipate in the next couple of months because we have we just have no idea with the weather change and with the uh, the fact that, you know, when things open up, things seem to, you know, to, to spike uh, upward. Um, is Israel now, in your opinion, beyond the whole complete lockdown 
philosophy, and no matter what, they're going to continue to slowly reopen? They have to reopen because the economic demands and the situations where um, it, it is allowed, there will be areas where the situation is worse. It is true they're down to below 20,000, and the number of serious cases uh, was below 600 after it hit 900 in the beginning of October. Um, there are still 300 or 250 people on um, ventilators, and uh, unfortunately, about 2,300 people lost their lives. So it's not it's not over, uh, but I think that the lockdown and the way it was carried out seemed to have helped to reduce the numbers and reduce interaction. Uh, but as uh, as we know, the, the toll is very high. It has to be administered smartly. We have to find ways that schools and, and businesses can reopen, even if it's slowly and controlled, so that you don't reactivate it. We see in Europe, it's raging in many countries that boasted that they had been past it. Now they admit they're in a second wave, maybe a third wave. They don't know. Look at the Midwest, the United States, and other areas where uh, record numbers are, are, are of people are getting ill. Um, we see more young people getting ill. So those who, who, who dismiss it or think this is being it's waning or uh, under control, it's not under control. We learn more about it. The hospitals know better how to treat it but we still have a, a raging virus, and, and we don't know if it mutates. We don't know what the next step will be. And we don't know how soon that vaccine is going to be available, but I thought it was a positive sign when we when I saw the uh, uh, members of state government start talking about the, the need to have a plan in place already uh, because they are anticipating. And again, I don't know if November 3rd is you know going to all of a sudden change the timetable <laughs> all of a sudden you know the election could be over and all of a sudden we hear that there's a you know vaccine available immediately um but uh but, but they're at, at least they are thinking about how to distribute this thing as quickly as possible and how to make sure that, that every american i assume in israel it's the same situation there with every israeli uh, are gonna be able to get it as soon as possible so at least if that plan is in place you'd have to hope that uh that there is um that there is hope that this vaccine will be out sooner rather than later, I pray. Because uh, I'll tell you, if, things, if, if there is a third wave, whatever you want to call it, and things continue to, you know, to, to drop and then you know, spike upward, especially as the weather gets worse, uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen here. I mean, I, I know we were talking about Israel a, a moment ago, but here in this country, there are state governments, as we saw r- locally, that you know, have this desire uh, when they hit certain numbers to, to start closing things down again. And I don't know how much... The U.S. economy and how many and how U.S. citizens are going to tolerate this anymore. Uh, and I get the you know the importance of saving lives and saving those who are most vulnerable, but it, it, it's worrisome that as you know that if numbers are going to again start to go upward, who knows what type of restrictions we're going to be under again? Anyway, um, true, we don't know, and we we. Um, you know, we speculate, but uh, when human life is involved, because Nefesh should take tough stands, and that's why people have to comply, and everybody listening can talk in their schools, in their communities, in whoever they talk to, Jews and non-Jews alike, that there's got to be full compliance. Look, no, masks or not, uh, um, people are skeptical and people raise questions. But clearly, it makes a difference, and it makes a difference if we socially separate, and it makes a difference if people wash and if they take the other precautions that make a difference. And still, people are skeptical about it. We have no right. You haven't got the privilege of skepticism right now. We've got to do whatever is necessary and proven to address this. Do you think it's too cynical to, to suggest that November 3rd may 
ha- make bring a drastic change to the whole attitude, or it's just I guess I guess we'll know eleven days from now, huh? Right. I mean, this is it politicized? Is there you know uh, permeate, permeating the whole effort? You know, every day the charges, counter charges, and stuff. The focus has to be on one thing: find a cure. In the meantime, implementing the steps necessary in a reasonable and smart way, which means that businesses uh, can be open if they follow the rules. We see the harassment of businesses in Borough Park and Flatbush and other areas. I mean, really undue and unfair, and they, they, they skip restaurants that were not kosher and not Jewish and, and go to a small store next door, which had nobody in it. They have repeated cases and even comments made by some of these uh, inspectors is a very troubling and and I think that the uh, officials have to um, be very judicious in the way and and it has to be done in an equitable way when there are neighborhoods which have higher numbers than some of the red zones then that they have to explain what the why this inequity is it uh can you explain, or is it smart for Israel to be treating someone who's known as an enemy um, in an Israeli hospital? I know it's an old issue because it's happened before, but in this case, it's Saab Erekat. We were somewhat surprised to hear that he's undergoing treatment at Hadassah Hospital. Well, he asked to go to to the Israeli hospital, and this is the guy who led the BDS, who who urged that Palestinians. And in fact, restricted. They restricted Palestinians from going to Israeli hospitals. Yet he and his family uh, want to go, and I'm sure that if uh, he doesn't make it, uh, they will blame the Israeli hospital. <laughs> but, but as uh, has been said many times in the past, when young Israelis risk their lives to save Arabs in Syria or children and to, to go into other hostile places to to do it, why Hamas's leadership fam- their families have been treated in Israeli hospitals all along while they're boycotting and and uh, carrying out rocket attacks it's because that's what Jews do and we don't look at who the person is if they can save a life and if they can treat them um, and you hope that the world will see which they won't and they certainly won't uh, appreciate um, what Israel is doing uh, but you don't turn it. Uh, doctors would, and, and Israeli hospitals would not turn away a person because of the political views. Pretty amazing. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSegal.com and the NachumSegal Network, and, of course, in the beloved NSN app. Uh, you mentioned Europe and uh, and Israel, and obviously we touched in the United States. Is is there any difference now in places like Jordan and Iran in terms of the COVID numbers? Has anything drastically changed in those countries? Look, I don't know that we get real numbers from many countries, um, but I have not seen any reports of a dra- dramatic change in the, in the situation. They do they have engaged in lockdowns. Uh, in a number of those countries, but uh, you don't see, I'm sure, enforcement of masks in Iraq and Syria, you know, where the conflict and numbers are very high in many of these countries, especially in Iran. Uh, it's been high in Turkey. It's been high in other uh, places. But I don't think that, you know, we're getting uh, accurate figures. Uh, we know that it's it's non-discriminatory. It attacks everybody. That's for sure. Um is it true that Hariri is going to be back as Prime Minister of Lebanon? Is it possible? It's possible, but right now Lebanon is so uh, disrupted that uh, they can't put together a government. They're, they've tried several people as Prime Minister, uh, and especially after the bombings and, and the explosion at the port, the economic conditions there 
are horrific. They're, the currency is collapsing. The economy is collapsing. Um, the uh, resentment of Hezbollah is is growing. Uh, and the internal divisions, and remember that Hezbollah has to approve whoever becomes prime minister. And the, right now, they need to get Western aid. They need to show a different face because of the isolation that they, Lebanon faces. And that's the reason why they're in the talks with Israel. It's not direct. They have an intermediary, the American ambassador in Algeria, I think. Uh, but it's because the, the, the total is ready to drill, and it means a lot, a lot of money. But they make clear this is not normalization, and it's not anything beyond that. But it's necessary. I'm sure Hezbollah is very unhappy that, that the Lebanon and Israel are talking in any form or even sitting in the same room in any form. Um, so, um, you know, realities are driving it, and the people, the alienation from Hezbollah when you look in the Arab world today, there's a study that was done of young Arabs, and it showed that more than half in every country want to leave, want to leave the country, and even higher in Lebanon. The only country that where it wasn't true was the UAE, uh, where the majority want to stay because they have new opportunities and they see the horizons that are, are possible. There is another remarkable change, and that is that the 75 percent of, of uh, Saudis said that they could see normalization within five years. And in countries like Jordan, Egypt, elsewhere, where always the numbers showed 90% against Israel, um, about two-thirds say that they favor normalization. Hmm. Now, whether this will sustain or it's just a moment or, you know, whatever, I mean, it's not done by Israeli polls. It's done by, uh, I think, Zagbi uh, pollsters. Uh, but but it is an indication, and it's a result when you change textbooks, when you change the attitude, and the impact of the Abraham Accords is clearly uh, pervasive, and people are saying, look, they're, they're going to benefit, look how happy they all are about it, and unlike the Jordan and Egypt deals, if there's celebration in the street, there are trade delegations going back and forth, there are already deals being negotiated, they're talking about 28 weekly flights between Israel and the UAE, between the different airlines, the Israeli and, and Etihad and um, Emirat Air. The um, it, it's really um, uh, uh, the, and now the Sudan getting very close uh, to negotiations and they, that they settled, settled the three hundred thirty five million dollars for the terrorism thing. We have to see how Congress will handle it. But the um, but there was a, two senior Israeli diplomats there this week. There are things that are extending uh, um, in other areas as well. I mean, some were cynical when they looked at it as if you could buy your way off of a terror list. I mean, what, what was the what, what was the, the the linkage between the financial compensation and how you know uh, the United States views Sudan as a terror country? Or well, terrorist? because it's, Sudan was put on the terrorism uh, state sponsors of terror list. It, this has to do with the Al Qaeda attacks on the U.S. embassies in Kenya, Tanzania, the coal attack in 2000, um, and. Um, and this restricts their ability to get aid and, and trade, et cetera. So the payment and settling that and and acknowledging and pledging not to support anymore, the big turning point was really in 2013 when the big warehouse, which I remember when we reported because it happened just shortly before, the day before we went on the air, was bombed in, in uh, Khartoum, the capital, where Iran had been uh, placing the huge quantities of weapons, which they were shipping to, to Gaza, to, to the Sinai against Egypt, Gaza against Israel. And after that explosion, the government 
sort of uh, cut Iran out, stop them from using Khartoum as the way station for the shipment of weapons. And um, and since then, we've seen some progressions. There was a change in prime ministers, and you know, it's not the most stable country. They were also caught in the in that conflict over the Nile, where Ethiopia is building a dam, and that involves Egypt, etc. And the they they have um, they've also, I think, sent troops to to help in Yemen. So there is a gradual transition, and uh, taking them off the terrorism list would be the reward for them complying, and I think part of it will be for them to join the uh, Abraham Accords. And what did you mean by the way Congress is going to handle it? Well, we don't. There's a lot of uh, anti-Sudan sentiment, and maybe because they don't want to have another deal before the election, or maybe because they uh, have legitimate doubts, but uh, it's not a certainty that Congress will approve taking them off the terrorism list Mm -hmm. just based on these actions. And you mentioned the the Saudis earlier, and you know, I mean, is is it important who stays in power in the United States for all this to happen? And I say it like that because if you look at the uh, Jordan Egypt deals, obviously mm-hmm. obviously brokered by the U.S. Now, if you look at the most recent Abraham Accords, you know, obviously brokered, sponsored, hosted by whatever you want to call it, the Trump administration. Uh, but we do know that you know that there are. You know there are candidates running now who are not uh, who are who who view foreign policy and Israel differently than some of their predecessors, even in the same party. Is, is it possible that a Saudi deal could be stalled if the wrong candidate wins this election? Well, I actually think the opposite. Um, but first, that I don't think anybody's going to undo the Abraham Accords. It has been saluted by President by Vice President Biden, and certainly it's President Trump's. Uh, administration's achievement. Um, but I believe that if it, that the Arabs are committed to this direction, for one thing, but it may enhance it. If they feel that America is not going to be there and it's not going to have a strong presence against Iran or against the Islamic Jihad or against Turkey, which they see now as an equal threat, something I've been saying here for years right. and talked to them about, and they were originally skeptical, and now you see that they talk about it as a parallel threat. Um, they, they're going to turn to Israel even more because it is it is a their aircraft carrier, but it's stationary. They have no place to go. They're there, and they have to join in these efforts, Israel, that is, because it's their security as well. And they have come to realize that more and more and see how much they have to offer. And with the new Mediterranean coalition, the gas form that was created that involves now more Europeans, the prime minister of Bulgaria told us this week he wants he's going to be part of it. In fact, it was angry that he wasn't included. I think Romania wants to be included. And then you have the Gulf added to it, and President Xi he told me this years ago when I approached him first about joining the, the Mediterranean Initiative. He said, and I will bring the Gulf. Now think of it. You've got to have the Gulf linked to the Mediterranean basis. They will become a, a, a regional coalition, a, a mini NATO, even if it's not a military alliance at this point, but it will certainly have security implications. So I think they, that if they have the more doubts they have about America, the more they're going to turn to Israel. As as Arab leaders have told me, it's our only hope against the enemy, and the enemy being Iran. And and, and if those deals are being made privately or without a third party, then the U.S. administration has got to be nuts not to hop aboard and take credit for it, right? That's essentially they're, they're entitled to a lot right. of the credit for having created the climate for pressing a lot of these countries, the the coalitions that that uh, we see emerging. But they also look at the reality on the ground of an Iran. 
that is facing internal dissension, collapse. You know, their, their currency hit 316,000 reals to the dollar. It's a 60% decrease this year after a, a bigger decrease than that last year. And, the um, you know, the, there has been a feeling all along that American, subs, you know, uh, um, American administrations going back for, for several maybe more than a decade, two decades, have generally been withdrawing from international commitments. And uh, the concern is, has been expressed for many years uh, about it, that America is still the sole superpower in the world that can help. We see the others, Russia, Turkey, Iran, uh, and China coalescing where they need to, being more, much more aggressive, filling any void that they find. And you know, establishing themselves, whether it's in Africa, look at Libya, look at Nagar-Karabakh, look at Yemen, you see these are all international conflicts where Russia, Iran, or Turkey, they end up on opposite sides or on the same side where it's convenient and mostly where it can oppose American presence, like in Syria, where you have the Astana process of the three of Iran, Russia, and Turkey. But I think that, um, that this is a process and the horses have left the stable, more and more will join it as they see the benefits, and especially the economic benefits, but also security. Were there substantive meetings this week with the official UAE visit to Israel, or was mostly a pomp and circumstance? No, this was business-related, and this is uh, they, they, they've signed a series of accords. Uh, I know with Bahrain there were seven MOUs, Memos of Understanding in different areas, and um, the same with Israel. These delegations are, you know, of course— uh, highly visible, but I think that there are real substantive components, and I've spoken to people from the Israel Export Institute from other places, and they tell me that things are, are really hopping, and as you know, uh, there are now, uh, I think, three or four rabbis in in the UAE, and uh, at least two synagogues, three, three congregations, I think, and as one UAE resident said to me, we have more rabbis than residents, but uh, but it isn't true, and uh, there are very distinguished people who, who are going. Rabbi Abadi now, a very distinguished Svidic uh, rabbi, is going, um, and, and uh, the kosher restaurant seems to be doing okay, and the catering businesses. So once COVID lifts, I, you can expect a flood of, uh, of tourism, of tourists both ways, but mostly, I think, to, to the UAE. So I think there's real tachlis to these deals, but also they see the, the increasing aggressiveness, Iran, and and the arms embargo having been lifted and their ability now to purchase. As they said, they're going to sell more than they purchase in weapons, but um, and the, the IRGC uh, threatened uh, both the United States and, uh, and Israel and continues to threaten and say that they have developed certain new weapons and money. A lot of money has been invested there, but frankly, it's not for foreign adventurism. It's to quell domestic unrest, which is very serious there. Hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Tell me about this American delegation that went to Syria to try to free American prisoners. They went there, even though these are people who are designated, you know, uh, on the terrorism list, uh, but to try and negotiate the release of Americans who are being held. And uh, I think that every effort to save a life <clears throat> is important. The prisoners and, who are American citizens are recognized as terrorists? No. Who is recognized? No, the, the people that they're negotiating with. 
Uh-huh. Got it. Okay. <laughs> so, so I'm right that it would be that, that it's unusual to think that that uh, that that anybody could think that they could sit down with the Syrians at this point and negotiate a deal. But you're saying you got to do everything in your power to try. Well, they try, and uh, you have to see what the deal is. Uh, there's another interesting story, uh, development from Syria that got re- re- released in a very limited way. But they supposedly 45,000 Syrians registered with the Russians at the Air Force Base in Latakia to go to Libya to fight in Libya as mercenaries. They had to be between 18 and 58. I think they get $1,000 a month if they're a guard and 3000 if they're combat duty. And they go for three months and come back for a month. But 45,000 people signed up because they're so desperate for the jobs and for the money that they're willing to go to Libya to be involved in that conflict. Boy, oh, boy. And that's uh, just part of the whole... Russian take over the region is that how you would put it? and and well it's it's a sign of Russian influence Russia um, wants a foothold they want to they join with the others to drive America out uh, but Turkey also has taken a couple uh, six thousand to of the Syrian to uh, uh, mercenaries to to uh, Libya and another twelve or fifteen hundred to Azari uh, at the Nagara Karabakh front to to Azerbaijan. What can you tell us about this new Gaza terror tunnel that was discovered? It, it is very uh, sophisticated again, big tunnel. People have to understand these are not, you know, pipelines that they just crawl through. These are very sophisticated. Huge amounts of money are invested. It had been worked on for a long, long time. It did cross the border. Uh, but Israel, as you know, has installed this uh, below-the-ground uh, uh, wall. Uh, and this was very deep. They tried to dig under the wall, but... The wall also has sensors, and I have actually seen it. It's very sophisticated, and they um, uh, detected the thing before it was finished, and now they're going to go about destroying it. Uh, but it shows that the that Hamas is continuing to divert both the cement but also the money to to this. You know, these things have air conditioning, electricity, communication systems, whatever in them. Uh, and the uh, you know the people suffer and they keep complaining. But in the meantime, you see how they divert both the um, what they promised to be used for construction and swore to everybody after Israel you know re- re- allowed the shipment once again that you see that they continue to divert and and what their real purpose is. It's been a while since we've heard about a terror tunnel near Gaza being discovered. I'm just wondering if they're fewer and far between at this point. They are because of the of the of the um, barriers that they have put up, which is almost complete. It cost Israel almost a billion dollars by the time it's done. So it's it's a big and expensive undertaking. But I think that till today, about 20 tunnels altogether, not just because of the fence, have been discovered. So you see that they look for points to penetrate, and it starts inside houses and schools and other things across the border. uh, And... It takes a long time because they have to go down, down very deep. We don't know if people die in the process and what happens because they don't obviously don't release any information on it. Wow. Finally, Malcolm, I I think too many people are, are demanding that I ask you this. Uh, it, because of your political science background, frankly, and because you've been observing what goes on in government for so many decades, and I'm not trying to get you to, to condemn Joe Biden or, or do anything. I'm just trying to understand. Um, when you hear about this New York Post report, and and it and it looks like if the report is true, it looks like you know there's been a uh, a, a, a deal at some point 
uh, that the vice president, because of his, the way he was involved, the way he manipulated his own foreign policy and that of the White House, he benefited financially from it. Simply tell me, not again, generically, forget Biden for a second. Simply tell me, is this something that goes on all the time and it's sort of everybody does it? And not to excuse it, but this is the way things happen to work in government. When someone's in power, they take advantage. Or if you were told that this story is true, it's such an, it's such an abomination and such an exception, and nobody would ever in government dare do something like this that it's really, really serious. What would you say? Well, I don't think it's a rule that people behave in that way. But, you know, in foreign governments, we see it. We know that uh, bribery and um, people using influence and many heads of state, you know, lose their heads and lose their jobs over when it's discovered. But the vast majority of it it doesn't get discovered. We see the cases now in Mexico and so many other places. The problem here is that nobody knows what's true anymore. You know, they, they have a computer. People then say it's the Russians, it's this one, it's that one. And I understand people's skepticism and why they their sense of disbelief about uh, about this. The accusations go both ways, right. and people you know recklessly can throw out a charge today. You know, a member of Congress can say something, or others can say something that um, without substantiation. And generally, there's no accountability then uh, later on for 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 what is said. The charges I think are serious; they have to be investigated. But the don't think it has much credibility with people because they're just so overloaded uh, already that they that you know they listen they find it interesting and salacious but i don't know that it shifts votes we're so full of sound bites we're so our our heads are packed with all of this stuff being thrown at us i think you're right i think people just at this point throw up their hands and have no idea who to believe at this point uh, and they don't hear any really cogent arguments one way or the other. All they hear is a lot of yelling and screaming and accusations. Um, and that's that. By the way, one other thing I wanted to point out before uh, before we wrap up. Ephraim Zuroff was on this week because a new book about the Lithuanian um, the contribution to the Holocaust. I think it's such an important message. We talk about messages to tell our children and grandchildren, Shabbos table or otherwise. I think it's a really important message. And he opened up my eyes to this you know, m- more than I ever, had ever realized. Uh, Without average citizens in different places in Europe and places like Lithuania, uh, it it would be impossible to carry out uh, the mass murder of Jews to the degree that the Nazis led. And and often many of us, including myself, forget that. We always think that it's, you know, uh, organized operations and, you know, with plenty of historical documents and proof um, that was carried out by a specific group. Without tremendous accomplices... From average citizens, it would be impossible to do what they did, and it's a really important message to remember as we live our lives as Jews anywhere in this world. And the story, obviously, we can't go into in great detail now, but it's true in virtually every country. I mean, there were a few who saved the lives of Jews, but there were many more who were collaborators, who assisted. Uh, we just had the anniversary of Babi Yar, uh, and uh, I was I did a tape for them for the dedication ceremony. But we have to remember, that was a massacre by bullets. They killed individually thousands, tens of thousands of people, and it couldn't be done without the locals. And how many... Um, places. Father Dubois has found mass graves, which were executed by often by the locals uh, in in, um, in Ukraine and other countries. You see that Poland doesn't allow you to mention that, that Poles were involved. You have to say that they're German concentration camps and the Germans did it, but they, they uh, criminalized uh, the charge because and try to rewrite the history. But 
we have to confront history. It's not an accusation against current people, but it is a fact that we have to recognize and to to honor those who rose above the moment and saved lives and uh, are acknowledged with Yad Vashem and elsewhere, but also to, to recognize those who collaborated and that the, what human nature can be and why we have to be on guard and why we take seriously any threat, any manifestation of anti-Semitism. And today with the Internet, it can be spread much faster, more effectively, and in ways that's very hard to detect and to control. Yeah, geopolitical atmospheres were created by leaders in the past, but now, as you just said, social media could do that in in literally minutes if uh, people wanted to. So you got to be very wary of it, to say the least. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Have we'll a good Shabbos. Speak everybody. again next week. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Friday mornings, 7.40 a.m. with the weekly update here at JM in the AM.